Sarah Winchester was the wife of William Winchester, the firearms magnate. They lived in New Haven, Connecticut, and they lived very comfortably. In 1866, they lost their only child. At the age of one month, a little girl died. When Sarah was 41 years old in 1881, her husband William died of tuberculosis, and she inherited an estate of about $20 million, which in today's value would be worth over half of a billion dollars. After her husband's death, she went to a psychic in Boston. And the psychic supposedly channeled her husband. And her husband supposedly told her that she needed to move west and that she needed to begin building a house. She moved to California and bought an old unfinished farmhouse. Her husband said supposedly as long as she was building, she would never die. And so she built and she built and she built. She didn't have an architect, so there were no plans. She just hired carpenters, and they did the work. At one point, the house was seven stories, but after a California earthquake, it ended up being four stories today. There are 150 rooms, 13 bathrooms, 2,000 doors, 47 fireplaces, and 10,000 windows. It didn't work. She died on September the 5th, 1922, at the age of 82 in her sleep. It is said that surrounding the house, there were enough building materials to build for another 80 years. The house is unoccupied today. It's simply a tourist attraction. But it's a visible reminder of those who are afraid to die. It's a silent witness to the fear of death many have we're in a series the elephant in the room where we're talking about things the, the elephant in the room is an idiom which means that something that everybody would pretty much acknowledge but no one really wants to talk about and today the elephant in the room is death I've entitled the message a look behind life's last door hebrews 9 27 and 28 hebrews 9 27 and 28. I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. The writer of Hebrews writes, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. God bless the reading of His Word. Go ahead and be seated. When we need information about life and death and eternity, where should we turn? The Scriptures. Who better to turn to than someone who's already been there, right? Somebody who's already experienced life, death, eternity. And so we turn today to the Word of God. First of all, I want you to see some fallacies about death. There are some false things that people believe about death. And there are four common lies, even though we may not express them this way, we still somewhat believe them. The first one is, I will live forever. Now, we don't say that, right? And we know that death comes, we just don't assume it's coming for us anytime soon. The writer of Hebrews says, it is appointed unto man once to die. 
You know about the three guys who were talking about their own death and what they hoped people would say at their funeral? Uh, they, they were talking to one another, and the first guy said, well, you know, I hope that folks would say he was a good philanthropist, that he gave money to worthy causes, and, and that, that he was just a good citizen. They looked at the second guy, and the second guy said, hmm, I hope that they would say that, that I was a good family man, that, that I took care of my wife, I took care of my kids, and, and that I was there when my family needed me. And they looked at the third guy, and without hesitation, he said, I hope they say at my funeral, look, he's moving. Here's a guy who had a fear of death. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in 1969 changed how we talk about death. She interviewed dying hospital patients and she identified five stages that she said that folks who were dying passed through as a rule. Now, I think her, her study methods could be uh, changed, but um, nevertheless, I think she's on to a little bit of something here. She said that those who grieve the loss of someone pass through the same five stages, and she, she identified the five stages. Number one is denial. She says, you hope that, you know, say the doctor gives you bad news that you're dying, there's nothing they can do. The first stage is denial. You wake up hoping that it's a bad dream. Surely, surely it's a misdiagnosis, or I'm going to wake up and realize this is a dream that it's not happening to me. And then when she realized it's not a dream, she said the second stage is anger. You get angry. Why me? Why now? Why? And then she said after anger comes bargaining. If you have any belief in God, you, you go to God and you try to bargain. God, if you will heal me from this, I promise I will live this way and I will do these things. And, and then when you realize that God is not one that bargains like that, depression sets in. And you mourn some past opportunities and some missed opportunities. And, and you mourn the fact that there'll be opportunities in the future that you'll not get to, get to be a part of. And then finally, she says, if you live long enough, the fifth stage is acceptance. This is resignation. This is just, it is what it is. And hopefully, you have hope beyond the grave. So the, the first thought, the first lie that people have is, I will live forever. Let me tell you the second one. How many are golfers here? You've ever played golf, or you know golf terminology at least. There's some of you here. The second fallacy that folks believe is, I can have a mulligan. Now, if you know what a mulligan is, you know what I'm talking about. A mulligan is when you hit a bad shot, and you just drop a ball and hit another one. You say, well, that one didn't count. I think, it, I think one time, no joke, I hit five balls into the water before I got one across. Did I count the five I hit in the water? No, they were mulligans. They were do-overs. I mean, I, you know, I just kept hitting until I got it right. The Scripture says it's appointed unto man to die once. Friends, this is not a test. This is not a practice life. This life is for real, and we get one shot at it. Now, this lie that I can have a mulligan is, is attached to two popular myths. One is reincarnation. A lot of folks believe that you're reincarnated and that you come back in, as another person or another life form, depending on how you lived. And, and they can, some folks who believe this can be pretty convincing if you listen to them. But really, reincarnation, when they talk to you about it, they're not giving you the whole story because reincarnation is actually bad news. It comes from Hinduism, the idea of karma. And so if you're reincarnated, you basically have to keep coming back until you get it right. And then once you get it right, you're set free, and that's it. End of story, game over. You don't have to worry about it anymore. 
And so the idea of coming back is not a good thing. That just means you didn't get it right the first time. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die after this, the judgment. It doesn't say we're reincarnated. It says the judgment. The second myth that's, that, gives, that supports this idea of a mulligan is purgatory. This is the idea that you go someplace and you work to pay for your sins, and when your sins are paid off, then you get to go to heaven. Um, family members can make that term shorter if they pay money to the church or if they light candles or if they offer certain prayers then the idea of purgatory can be shortened to where eventually uh, you get into heaven Um, the problem is it's built upon an untruth that we atone for our own sins what did jesus say in john 19 30 on the cross he said it what is finished right it's the Greek word to telestai, and one of the translations of that Greek word means stamping something is paid in full. In other words, at the cross, our sin debt was paid in full. Purgatory is the idea that Jesus was just the beginning, that there are things that we have to do as well. That's not what he said. He said, it's finished. Now, a lot of Catholics believe this lie, primarily from Second Maccabees, which is one of those books of the bible that are in their bible that aren't in anybody else's bible because the early church fathers deemed them not to be inspired by scripture but nonetheless they're in their bible and it talks about praying and sacrificing for the dead mormons believe in an idea of purgatory as well because they believe in proxy baptism that you can get baptized for an unbelieving person and that person can get into at least the lowest form of heaven well you don't get to live together or live, live forever. There's, there's no mulligans. You get one shot at it. See, a third lie. This is it. Folks believe that, man, this is all, this is all there is. When, when life is over, you check out and you're done. It's, it's called annihilation, that you just cease to exist, that there's no part of you that lives after death. Jesus spoke to this issue in John chapter 5. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Now, does that sound like annihilation? Does that sound like they cease to exist? It says, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, given him authority to execute judgment also because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of of condemnation. Life ends in death. It's followed by judgment, but the Bible is clear that judgment will not be the same for everybody. Today, if you're a child of, of God, if you're a Christian, you're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's not a decision on whether or not you get into heaven. It's just a basis of where, they, where God tests your works. What was your motivation for doing the things you did as a believer? Are they, are they true? Are they pure? You're getting in. You, you just have to face the judgment seat of Christ. But if you're here without Christ, you're going to face what's called the great white throne judgment where you will be separated from God for all of eternity. See, Jesus said there are two roads. One is broad that leads to destruction. One is narrow that leads to life. In Luke 12, he said there are two destinations. One is heaven, one is hell. He said, I'll tell you who to fear. We don't have to fear the devil. He says, fear him who, ca- who after death has the power to cast you into hell. Talking about the Lord God. We are appointed once to die. And then the judgment. And then the last one, this last lie, is probably the one that is believed most in this room. 
These first three, we probably, not many of us hold to them, but this last one, I think there's a lot of folks who would hold to it, and that's the idea that I need to be afraid. I need to be afraid. See, God, God didn't make us just to die. He made us for life. He made us for fellowship. The ultimate purpose of our life is to have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ the Son. I mean, that's why we were created. Now, physical death is a result of the fact we live in a sinful, fallen world. But Jesus came to show us that God loves us. You know, I told, I've told you in the last few weeks, this cross is a picture of God saying, I would rather die than live without you. See, when your hope is in Jesus, your perspective on death is different. You don't see death as the dark and unknown. You see it as the known. You see it as the promise of God. What did, what did Jesus say in John 14? He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you into myself that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is preparing a place for those of us who know him as Lord and Savior. And that knowledge affects the way we live and the way we die. I've done funerals for people that were saved and funerals for, for folks that were lost, and they are entirely different. Entirely different. Because for the lost person, there is no hope. For the saved person, listen, they mourn at both funerals, but at the saved person's funeral, they, they mourn, as, as Paul said, is not like those who have no hope. They mourn with hope because they, they know they'll see their loved one again. Now, it doesn't mean we look forward to death. It doesn't mean we don't mourn at death. We do. We just don't have to be afraid. So this, this dovetails nicely into the second point, which are some fears that people have about death. We, we sang Chain Breaker a minute ago. There are, some, there are some chains, and one of the chains is fear about death, and the Lord wants to set us free. Fear number one, folks fear dying and going to hell. The devil gets us doubting our salvation, and when he does, we are paralyzed spiritually. We, we won't witness to anybody else about our salvation because we're not sure we have it. He's got us wondering whether or not what we have is real, and so we're certainly not going to tell anybody else about it because it, we're thinking, if I don't have what's right, then I'm telling them something that's wrong. John 3.16 is popular for a reason. Some of you, that's the very first verse you learned for a reason. The reason is, it is the entire gospel in a nutshell. The whole gospel is found right there in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. That's the motivation. That's the motivation for everything else you read in the verse. For God so loved you and me that he gave his only begotten son. Why? That whoever believes in him should not, what? Perish, but have eternal life. That's the gospel, that God loves us enough that he sent his son, why? To give his life so that we who believe in him might be eternally saved. We don't have to fear dying and going to hell. You know, in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in jail at a place called Philippi. And um, if you know anything about it, you know, their chains are loose, the doors are open, but none of the prisoners are leaving at the midnight hour. They're still sitting in there singing hymns. And uh, the jailer comes in, and he knows that Paul and Silas are behind it, and so he asks them in verses 30 and 31, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on. Now, I emphasize that word. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute because I think that's a significant word. Believe on 
the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The word believe there is a word that's more than just a mental affirmation. I believe today that two plus two is four. That is a mental affirmation. I have, I have been taught that, I have been trained that, and so I mentally affirm that. Okay, But the word belief here means to completely trust. To completely trust. See, if it's just belief, if it's just simple mental affirmation, we've got a problem because James says that even the demons believe in God and tremble. All right? If you know any of the interactions that Jesus had with the demon-possessed men that he encountered in the Gospels, they often confessed who he was. They often called him son of the living God. They, they, they believed in who he was, but they didn't completely trust him. See, because if belief is all there is, if it's just a simple belief, then the demons are saved because they believe in God. They tremble. They confessed that Jesus was who he said he was, but they didn't completely trust him with their life. And so that's the difference. Just believing facts about Jesus is not enough. John 1, 12, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now, John 3, 16 says that if you believe you have everlasting life, you're, you're, you're not going to be punished, but you're not perishing. That, so if you don't believe, the opposite is true. You are perishing. And the word perish means to be utterly destroyed. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you should be afraid. I mean, you are one heartbeat from being utterly destroyed, according to Scripture. Now, you say, well, I don't want that. Did you know the most reasonable thing for you today is to be saved? God says it's the most reasonable thing for you. Speaking through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 118, God says, come now and let us reason together it's a picture of god saying let's just sit down and talk about this be reasonable with me okay god god is saying listen this is a no-brainer this this is a no-lose situation though your sins be as scarlet they shall be as white as snow though they be red like crimson they shall be as wool god says listen the most reasonable thing for you to do is to be saved and when that happens then you don't have to fear dying and going to hell Many people today are afraid they've committed the unpardonable sin. No forgiveness. And they, it's because they don't know what the unpardonable sin is. Some, something, some great moral failure. Well, you know, David committed adultery, and I, ex, I fully expect to see him in heaven. Some believe it's murder. Well, Moses committed murder, and I fully expect, him to, see, I fully expect to see him in heaven. Maybe you believe it's the homosexual lifestyle. Well, Paul said last week, we looked at it, 1 Corinthians 6. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified. And, and so they were saved and came out of that lifestyle. So I fully, I fully expect to see those who had practiced at one point in their life homosexuality in heaven. So what is the unpardonable sin? Who is it that convicts us of our sin when we are lost? The Holy Spirit, right? John 16, Jesus said, when he comes, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit convicts you the fact that you're a sinner and that Jesus is, is the way to be saved. And when you, when you quench the Spirit, when you say, listen, I'm not listening to that junk. I don't believe that. I'm not going to believe in Jesus. That is the unpardonable sin. The only sin that will send you to hell is rejection of Jesus Christ as your Savior. And the only way you know to be saved is through the witness of the Holy Spirit. 
If you've trusted God, you are eternally saved. Listen, if you're a Christian today, you need to understand it is impossible for you to commit the unpardonable sin. Even if you tried, you couldn't commit it. Don't try, but you can't. All right? Because he's coming to our heart. He says, I will never leave you. So don't fall into the trap of thinking you can lose your salvation. You know, we got folks right up the street that if you were to go into their service this morning, they, they might tell you that you can lose your salvation. Well, what did Jesus say? John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. When you see the words truly, truly, or verily, verily, Jesus is saying, hey, pay attention here. This is something important. I say to you, if you hear my word and believe in him who sent me, has, past tense, eternal life. You already possess it. Has passed out of death into life. Now, if, if I were to live to be 75 years old, and then I died, people would say, well, he had a 75-year lifespan. How long is eternity? To quote the theologian Buzz Lightyear, to infinity and beyond. I mean, that's how long eternity is. You can't couch it. And so if you could have salvation and at some point lose it and no longer have eternal life, it's not eternal. It's, it's marked by the, the period of time that you had it. See, we're born into God's family and we'll be his child forever. So you don't have to fear death and going to hell. Fear number two is dying and leaving loved ones behind. I think this primarily comes when you start to have children in your life, maybe grandchildren. When you get married, you begin to, you begin to have a fear about dying and leaving people that you love behind. Who will care for my kids? Who will care for my spouse? Now, obviously, God doesn't want us to worry. So what should we do? If, if we're concerned about this, there are two very practical things you can do. Number one, prepare for an unexpected departure. If you're worried about this, prepare for the fact you may die. You know, I'm 57 years old, and there's a website called Death Clock. And you go in there, you enter your birth date, your height, your weight, you answer a few questions, and, and it tells you what day you're going to die. So it told me March 14th, 2035. That means I've got a little under 16 years or so. The clock's ticking. Now, I don't put much stock into that, okay? Um, because we don't know any of us. But, but listen, if you fear dying and leaving somebody behind, prepare. Now, how do you do that? You have a will. I mean, get a will. Listen, have a living will where you give directives to your family. I can't tell you the number of families that I have seen fight when somebody's on life support. Take it out of their hands so they don't have to fight. Already make the decision for, for them. This is what I want to happen in my life. That way they're not fussing. The only, thing, the only person they can be mad at is you there in the hospital bed because you made the decision for them. So have a will. Have a living will. Have life insurance if you're worried about this. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, 8, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so prepare for an unexpected departure. But if you're worried about dying and leaving loved ones behind, the second thing you need to do is trust God with those loved ones. I mean, trust Him. Do you realize God loves your family more than you do? 
I mean, if you were to ask me, I have a wife, I have three kids, I have two grandkids, let me show you some pictures. Um, but I really don't have any of that. They're God's. He's just blessed me temporarily to have those in my life. They belong to Him. Because they belong to Him, He loves them more than I do. Listen, if you can't trust your loved ones with God, how can you trust your soul to Him? Fear number three is that the loved ones will die. So here you're not worried that you're going to die. You're fearful that somebody you love is going to die, your spouse or your children. And this gets, I think this hits you more as you get older. Your child begins to grow up and they start to drive. <laughs> and you're worried about their driving ability or lack thereof. And then they go off to college and you're wondering, you know, did they make it home to the dorm tonight? Are, are they safe? Or they move across country to take a job and, and, and you're no longer around to protect them, to watch over them. You know, we need the perspective that Job had when it, came to our, when it comes to our children. You know the story of Job. Job lost everything in chapter 1, including his 10 children. The storm blew and the, the, the walls fell in and killed all of his kids. And, and he's, was he heartbroken? Yes. Was he grieving? Absolutely. But you get to the end of chapter 1 and he understands that the kids were the Lord's anyway and that every day he had with them was a gift from God. That's why he says at the end in Job 121, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Job says, man, I'm heartbroken. The Lord gave them to me, the Lord's taken them. And so every day I had with them, thank you God, it was a gift. You didn't have to give me one of them. You know, it'd be great if we all lived to be 100 and died in our sleep with our kids 70 years old around our bedside, right? It doesn't always happen that way. In fact, it seldom happens that way. In fact, there are times when it really happens the way that it shouldn't, that children die before their parents. And it shouldn't happen that way, but it does. I think you can get through that, but you never get over that. I remember Edith Willoughby. Edith's in glory today, but her son had died. And I remember sitting in her living room and she said, Preacher, you don't know grief until you bury your child. And I think she was right. She, she never got over it. She got through it, but didn't get over it. It leaves a hole in your heart. So if that happens, just look at the fact that every day you had with that child was a gift from God. The fourth fear is the pain of dying. Woody Allen said it best, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. That's the pain, the fear of the pain of dying. Listen, most of us here would say, I'm spiritually ready to go. When I die, I know I'm going to heaven, I just don't want to get on the next bus. You know, if, if we're boarding buses right now, there's still a few things I'd like to do, and so I'd kind of like to hang around just a little while, all right? That's where most of us are at. I had a predecessor in East Tennessee, the pastor before me, his name was Clay Frazier. Clay was reaching retirement age anyway, but he got cancer. And so he retired, and they called me to be the pastor. And, and Clay prayed for his own healing, and, and many of us in the church, we prayed for his healing, but God didn't grant healing to him. He ultimately was going to die from his cancer. Towards the end of his life, Clay believed that one of the reasons God gave him cancer was to show the world how a Christian dies. He believed that that was one of the reasons that he had cancer, was to, to demonstrate that you don't have to be afraid that this is how you die. 
He was living out Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. See, God doesn't want you to fear death. It's the devil who wants you to fear death. 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Oh, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As I was preparing this message today, I prayed a Bible verse for you. For those of you who are here this morning, I'm going to tell you what the verse is. Through the preaching of this message, I have been praying Hebrews 2.15 for you. Release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Some of you have been fearing death, and my prayer for you today is that you would be set free from that fear, that you'd not be held in bondage by that fear, and that you could truly enjoy the remainder of your life. Well, in our text, let me just give you some facts about death, and we'll be done. First of all, that it involves an appointment. It is appointed unto man once to die. The word appointed there means reserved or laid aside. If you make a hotel reservation, they supposedly, they're supposed to lay aside, set aside a room for you. Sometimes they overbook and don't do it, but they're supposed to set aside. This, this appointment, this is a reservation we cannot cancel. Every one of us is going to face death. It is an appointment. What really bothers us about death is the certainty of it. We know we're going to die, and so that bothers us. But the uncertainty of it bothers us too because we don't know how we're going to die, when we're going to die, what's going to be the cause, is it going to be painful, etc. But it's an appointment. It's a reservation we're going to keep. Secondly, it involves an appearance. It is appointed unto man once to die. After this, the judgment. We're going to appear before the Lord God. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, death through sin... Thus death spread to all men because all sinned. I was reading this week that over the last 30 years, they did a study on deaths in America. And, and by far, the number one cause of death in America is cardiovascular disease. In fact, it's, it's more than like two times the second leading cause, which I think was cancer. And I read that and I was, I was kind of stunned at that. But, but then I got to thinking, I thought, that's not right. That's not true. Friends, the number one cause of death in America is sin. According to Romans 5.12, the reason you and I are going to die is because of sin nature. Now, there may be another means which that death comes about, like cardiovascular disease or cancer, but the reason we're going to die, the number one cause, is sin. We've all sinned. Did y'all ever see the Truman Show, the movie The Truman Show? About a guy named Truman, Truman Burbank. And Truman's one of those just you know, regular guy's got the slide rule in the pocket kind of thing, and he's going through life, just living life, and um, he begins to notice that things aren't the way that they should be. Something is off. What he doesn't know is that his life is the number one television show on TV. There are over 5,000 cameras that are hidden that are watching him from the time he wakes up and brushes his teeth to when he goes to work, comes home, goes to bed. And so everybody tunes in to see what, what, what's happening in Truven Burbank's life. He begins to realize there are, there are these unseen people, unseen audience that are watching his every move. Friend, as, as human beings, we need to understand there is an unseen audience. It's the Lord God, and he sees everything goes on in our life and 
As believers, we'll give an account for that at the judgment seat of Christ. Finally, death involves an appeal. See, verse 27 tells us our problem. It's appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So our problem is the fact that we're sinners, and we're going to die, and then we're going to face judgment. So, verse 28. So, in other words, because we have the problem with death and sin and judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And so his appeal to you today is to put your faith in him, to trust him as your savior, and to be saved. We're all going to fa- In fact, to look at chapter 10. If you still have your Bible open, look at verse 26. See, because if you, re- if you leave here, his appeal to you today is to be saved. But if you leave here rejecting salvation... And you never get saved. This is the reality for you. Chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. And so if you leave without Christ and you are never saved, now that you know the gospel, if you leave rejecting it, there's there's no hope. Until we draw our last breath, though, it's not too late to escape the penalty of sin. But if we refuse Jesus, when we stand before him as judge, there won't be a mistrial. There aren't any loopholes to grab hold of. It'll just be a simple verdict. Guilty. Depart from me, you doer of iniquity. I never knew you. Father, I pray today that we have been faithful with the subject of death and dying and that we've looked at it from a biblical perspective according to your word thank you that we don't have to fear death when we know jesus christ as our savior that we have the hope of heaven and that we know where we'll be one day when that day comes lord for those who are here today who maybe don't have that assurance i pray that today would be the day that they would give their heart and life to you and be saved now lord find our obedience to your call Pleasing in your sight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.